106 of Breaking Cape with Baldrin and Barry. Hello, brother shippers, and hello, rest of you. And why aren't you in the brothership, by the way? Breaking Cape with Baldrin and Barry available on Facebook. On today's show, we will be reviewing a match from 2011. Barry, by God, for the first time in the history of this fine podcast, we're reviewing a John Cena match. And it is CM Punk taking on John Cena. Money in the bank. Thank you to our friend Kevin Orcutt for recommending this match. We are going to be offering up, oh, a review of a new show. I won't say a new show. It's been about a month now. It's been out on Netflix, Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of South Florida. Barry and I offering some uh, some thoughts on that, as well as getting a review from an attorney, actually two attorneys. What? And their thoughts on the legal process that ensued from this uh, show. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, towards the end of the show about Lou visiting Vegas for CAC. We got a little bit of everything. Barry, are you ready to go? I think this is going to be a one of the best episodes we've ever done, Jeff. Barry, right away, I just want to say that both you and I were remiss uh, when we were recording last week's show. We uh, came across the news of the death of Michael K. Williams, Omar from The Wire, and Chalky White from Boardwalk Empire. Just a crushing, crushing loss. What an acting talent, Barry. What a huge acting talent. And when you you and we were we were kind of messaging between uh, myself, you, and Lou, and Sweet Lou, and, and you said Michael K. Williams, and that didn't register immediately for me. I, I got to tell you, as much as uh, I think a lot of people are going to remember him as uh, Omar, and Omar, I think, was the pivotal character, right, of The Wire. Indeed. Absolutely. He, he'll always be chalky white to me, and I, I loved Boardwalk Empire. I followed it uh, every Sunday night on HBO. i huge Steve Buscemi fan, and chalky white was so great. It was such a well-written character and his acting was fantastic. And if you remember that pivotal scene uh, with Chalky White towards the end of the run where he's basically killed and it's, uh, I forget the actor who, who, but that guy's fantastic. That was the guy from Westworld. He went on to Westworld. Uh, that guy is just a tremendous actor as well, but Chalky White was great. And I remember I saw him in something within six, seven months after Boardwalk Empire ended and immediate, like, I'm like, it's Chalky White. I've got to watch this. He was though that kind of actor that he captivated you, that you had to watch him if he was on your screen, Jeff. Yeah. And for those of you out there that were fans of The Wire, uh, fans of Michael K. Williams, if you have not yet seen Boardwalk Empire, it is a fantastic show. And when you talk about great programs, uh, you know, not in television history, but in the history of HBO, uh, Boardwalk Empire is one sometimes that slips through the cracks that people forget about. Uh, it starred Steve Buscemi. It's set like in the 1930s, uh, the gangster and prohibition stuff. And it is fantastic, and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Barry, I know that you agree with me on that. Jeez, I, Jeff, I, uh, and I got to say, too, it, since the pandemic started, uh, I certainly have become, you know, my fucking TV is literally attached to my body at this point. But also being a single guy, uh, you know, it, it there's not a lot that I go out and I do. You know, I go to the beach and I go out to dinner and shit. But, it, you know, I spend a lot of time watching television. You and I are both deep into Bosch, which is a fantastic show. But I had this conversation with somebody uh, a couple of days ago, Jeff. And do you remember 10 
15 years ago, maybe it's 20 years ago, TV was being referred to as the idiot box. Yes. If you watch it, you'll be stupid. There's nothing there. I believe it was Marshall McLuhan who called television the vast wasteland. Well, guess what? You're fucking wrong. <laughs> Marshall McLuhan. Well, he may have, he may have been really right wrong. like in the late 60s. Yeah, he was right then. But it is, I mean, has there ever, and we were discussing being a wrestling fan. I do think, uh, you know, the parallel to that, this is a great time to be a pro wrestling fan. We are really fortunate, in my opinion. I feel with television, I feel it's the same way. You go back the last decade. I think The Wire, Breaking Bad. Uh, I, I think we've seen, you know, the amazing amazing television shows and, and you know bosh bosh for me it, it i'll say it's it's in my top 10 shows of all time it was so under the radar for us jeff it was crazy and to think that prime is 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 making this show or was making this show and jeff i have do i have good news by the way apparently there is a bosh spinoff on its way and do you know how i know that know that Young Barry Livingston, young Barry Livingston, seven-year-old <laughs> Barry Livingston posted today on Facebook that his character is a recurring character on the spinoff. And so who, who is the spinoff focusing on? That he did not say, and I don't know, but I thought that was interesting. So I'm excited because I, I think a lot of it is the actual tone of the show. He does a great job. Bosch does a great job, which is this actor, Titus Welliver, yes. uh, which who was in Deadwood, another great HBO show that I love. It's so. like a, it's like unlimited now with all these great shows. It's fantastic. So let's get to our match of the week now, Barry. We're going courtesy of our man. Oh, I'm sorry. Lou has corrected me. Former FCC Commissioner Newton Minow coined the term vast wasteland. How dare you correct me? Thanks to our friend Kevin Orcutt, two weeks in a row, Kevin gets a mention. He sent us this one a while back, Barry. I finally had a chance to watch it. We are going July 17th, 2011. It is CM Punk versus John Cena. Money in the bank. Barry, do you know we are, good Lord, 200 and how many episodes in now? And 280. I think yeah, exactly. This is our first ever John Cena match. And I got to tell you, this crazy. crowd is fucking on fire for this match. Tell the folks what you thought about it. It's hard to believe it's our first John Cena match. And I think I do think I, I think John Cena as a professional wrestler definitely was geared towards younger, a younger audience. Uh, you could, you know, obviously take remove him from this match because it's Chicago so you know what you're going to get in Chicago if you're facing CM Punk. But John Cena faced a lot of booze, hate, uh, you know, for much of his career, because a lot of it was he was seen as the poster boy of the WWE, the face of the corporate, uh, the corporate company. Uh, but at the same time, John Cena, to me, is such a uh, such a great guy. It, it, you know, obviously a lot of it's got to do with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but, you know, I've just heard so many good stories uh, when the cameras aren't rolling, when he's out in public, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, for me, based off of the reaction that my son had when he met him, I'll, I'll always be a John Cena fan. And John's reaction to my son uh, will always make me a fan. This match, though, this is a holy shit match, Jeff. And I did watch this. So I was... I was there when the whole, and I wasn't there. I was watching the WWE during this period when uh, CM Punk and the CM Punk thing, the genesis of it was really unusual. It was a guy that was 
I don't want to say being buried, but he was lost in the shuffle. You know, there was they had a lot of talent. Not the first time or the last time that's happened in the WWE or any wrestling company. We should say yeah. just no, to be that's, fair. That's fair. Yeah, but it but at the same time he was kind of lost in this uh, in this big promotion without a lot of direction. And at the end of a Monday Night Raw, he came out, did what I guess coined the term pipe bomb. I, I don't know if I had ever heard that before, and gave this Im- impassioned, emotional speech about uh, about what he thought about the WWE and how it holds people back and how he's sick of it. And it really turned into, it definitely made his career and put him in the stratosphere. And it, it, this is the match that it was building for. And boy, did these guys deliver. And boy, did the city of fucking Chicago deliver. Jeff, we've said it a million times. Doesn't matter what you have in the ring. If your crowd reacts, you got a winner. And this is, these people are, you know, are on fire. And and I got to tell you, it's, there's something that's been bothering me a little bit. Uh, and a lot bothers me on Facebook and social media. And one of the things you can is, talk to me, Barry, I'll, I'll listen. Is it, will you sweet Lou, will you listen also when I, when I, when I vent right now? Of course. I appreciate it. So, He's you know, giver just like you and I, Barry, <laughs> Somebody's got to be the giver in the relationship. So, yes. But, you know, there's a, I see this uh, frequently, and I actually saw it last night, uh, and I believe it was in our Facebook group. And somebody said, I can't stand it when people chant, this is awesome, or, or fight forever. And I'm like thinking to myself as I'm watching, as I'm watching this match and people are chanting all throughout the match. Why would you care what people chant if people are in a live venue at a live event and having a great time to the point that they're chanting? Why does that bother anybody at home? Like, that's a very bizarre thing to hate, uh, in my opinion. But with that, this fucking crowd is on fire. They are chanting. They are every single motion they pop. And that so is so exciting when you're not there and you can watch this at home. Uh, so the stipulation, what I like of this is that punk apparently had not signed. I mean, this was the storyline punk had not signed a new contract or contract extension. And if he won the title in Chicago, his hometown, that he might possibly be taking the title and leaving. So of course the outcome is now predetermined. We know what's going to happen, but there's a lot of drama on it. Uh, there's a great sign, Jeff, in the crowd as they're going in the beginning and doing the introductions. I love Brutus Beefcake. Did you catch that? <laughs> Just like you the did. Why'd you catch it? Because <laughs> they spelled Brutus wrong, and it's <laughs> right indicative of the city of Chicago. I don't know, but they they if you can't probably indicative Brutus, of the South Side where the White Sox play, because the North Side where my Cubbies play, you got smart people there, Barry. That's so very true. And I got to say, Jeff, did you? I know you went to the uh, to Wrigley. Did you ever go to uh, to where the White Sox play? I would have no need. You know, okay. it, it's a horrible stadium. Whatever. <laughs> I, what's it called now? Oh, it's uh, while well, I believe the uh, the official name now is Guaranteed Rate Field. <laughs> Which is about as bad a name as you get. Comiskey. Wow. And that, that replaces the former name U.S. Cellular Field. Yes, that's where I was. OK, but so I was. But old- most people still call it Comiskey Park. Yes. The old, old stadium was Comiskey Park. And and by the way, just imagine and sweet Lou, feel free to chime in on this particular issue with all the people now that are so worried about 
history and, you know, uh, and, oh, this guy said something 20 years ago, so we need to remove his name. Imagine if Charles Comiskey was still around <laughs> because he was not extremely well thought of uh, by his employees. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's probably a good thing that they changed it from Comiskey quote unquote officially. But no, I did not go to the south side of Chicago <laughs> where where in fact uh, I hear a man named uh, Bad Bad Leroy Brown uh, yes. is but uh, no, I stuck to the north side. So I uh it, my first time uh in Chicago in many years was in 2007 when I I Jeff I opened up a restaurant in Chicago. So I spent 2 months there and my nights were essentially free. So I I went to a lot of Cubs games and I went to two White Sox games. Uh, the White Sox was a corporate deal. It was June and it was like 43 degrees at night in the month of June, which I thought was weird. But going from the from Wrigley Field, which I feel has a lot of personality, it literally and the best way to describe it, if you've never been, is it's like an exclusive club. It's a smaller stadium, but everybody there is a fucking essentially a diehard. It is like this really really exclusive club. And then you get to, and it was like us cellular little field when I was there. Now it's guaranteed rate, uh, stadium. That's terrible. But, uh, there was not a lot of personality at, uh, where the white Sox were playing. Like it just wasn't, there was that vibe was not even close to what you got in Wrigley, but I digress. Uh, and, and that was actually your fault because you brought up about, uh, South side <laughs> and North side. So you, you, you set me up for that one. Uh, the pre-match is, fucking amazing because CM Punk, and this is really, again, this is the beginning of the CM Punk love fest in Chicago. And I don't know if this, if this was his first appearance in Chicago since the pipe bomb, it may have been, but, uh, he, they just fucking go nuts for him and he sits mid ring and soaks it all in. And there's a sincerity to to the way CM Punk was reacting, like you know, in wrestling, Jeff. Again, we're we've been fans for decades. It, it, even when you see things that you think are sincere, you realize in most cases they aren't. That it's just people reacting to a situation. CM Punk legitimately seemed really sincere in the way he was sitting in the ring, looking around, and that expression on his face. Uh, and then John Cena comes out, and I'll tell you what: if you've ever wanted a crowd uh, or to see a crowd or hear a crowd vociferously. I believe first time we've ever used that word, Jeff. Very vociferously. Thank you. Boo somebody. John. And this was the difference with John Cena. John Cena didn't come out. Not one smile, not one arm pump in the air, a fist pump, anything like that. John Cena poker face straight to the ring like that. That to me, this whole opening of this match is almost as good as the match. It's that good. Uh, the match was fantastic. And to tell you, they did everything. The crowd, again, they they couldn't look out at the arena without the crowd losing their fucking mind. The ending of this match, though, genius. Spoiler alert, been 10 years. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, McMahon comes out with John Laurinaitis. And McMahon, playing the ever-consummate heel, is motioning for Laurinaitis to get over to the timekeeper to ring the bell because Cena's got uh, is punk trapped in the STFU or whatever he was calling it. Uh, so 
Laurinaitis goes over. Cena jumps out of the ring and punches Laurinaitis right in the face. He goes down. Place is losing their fucking mind. Beautifully timed, by the way, too. It was all perfect, right? Like everything was perfect. Cena gets back in the ring. He's right into uh, into Punk's finisher. The go to sleep. One, two, three. Punk wins the title. McMahon stands there and closes his eyes. Like it just such so fucking perfect the way it was done. Uh, McMahon then gets over to uh, he takes a minute. Gets over, gets the microphone at the timekeeper's desk, calls for Alberto Del Rio, who had just won the money in the bank, to come out and cash because we can't have this title leaving the WWE. Alberto Del Rio gets in the ring, fucking CM Punk or whoever lays him out, like immediate CM Punk lays him out immediately, uh, and then that's it. But just the way it was done blueprint for perfection this could not be any better and if i'm correct kevin orcutt said this is his favorite match of all time and the match is good like you know it's probably a four to you know if we're putting that if we're putting a rating on it it's a four to five star match but it's the opening and it's the closing and all the stuff that happens before and after this is a literal script of something that was done to perfection jeff so you make a good point there. If you want to say this match is like a four-star match, but then you would add a full star for the opening, uh, you know, the callback to how the feud began, then the closing and the crowd, the way the crowd plays a part in the whole story, that equals up to a five-star. And, you know, like when I first watched this, I, you know, and I sent Barry the matches and I said, holy shit, wait till you see the crowd in this. And again, this is a, a horse that we've beaten to death, but the crowd plays such an important part when you have a great match. You can have a very good match that a crowd can elevate even higher. And here you had a really good match that the crowd elevated even higher. Uh, a couple of things that I that I wanted to uh, you know throw back at you, Barry. To me, the way the crowd in Chicago reacts to CM Punk, not just then, but even now, when they were uh, when he made his debut in AEW, very similar to me. The way that Bret Hart was so over, not just in Canada, but especially in Calgary. W- would you think that's fair? It's it's extremely fair. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another point in the match that I I thought was very uh, very very funny was here you had as you've said the consummate babyface in John Cena, but now he's in the lion's den. Uh, he's uh, here. Here's an old movie, Barry. Lair of the White Worm, if you will. Did Fucking you that love one? that movie. <laughs> Thank Amanda you, Donahue. Hugh Please Grant. Give me some applause for uh, referencing the Lair of the White Worm. What anyway, a great movie. So he's in there and he goes to like, it's like at some point in match where he's getting ready to hit one of his big moves and he goes to do it and the crowd just starts booing and he kind of shrugs his shoulder and smirks because yeah, I'm not the baby face. They're not going to react the way that they normally would if they were in Boston, you know? And I thought that was very funny. Um, so Jeff, you th- Jeff, not because you did this again, Jeff, because you brought up something that had nothing to do with it. I'm going <laughs> to go in that do you remember that scene of if you haven't seen Larry the White Worm, essentially she is a it's a female vampire for for the most part. That's what she is. And do you remember the scene? I think they're in a hot tub or a pool and she goes down on him. And all you see is his reaction when she bites. 
I, I hate when shit. that happens. They're oh, funny. I hate that. Yeah. Teeth is bad. So, you know, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, uh, do you see, uh, you know, we talked about how he's, you could draw a correlation with CM Punk being over in Chicago the way that Brett was in, in Calgary. The whole anti-hero thing uh, of CM Punk, is there some Stone Cold Steve Austin? And I'm asking you these questions, and just so the audience, you know, knows, I I wasn't watching, especially the WWF at this point, okay? I just, uh, like, I figure about, oh, 2006, 2007, I just kind of, it just fell off my radar for over 10 years. So, the whole John Cena thing. Let me ask I you missed a question. That. What, yeah. what, you were already with Kim at that stage, actually. Yes, I was. I was trying to figure what would, what would cause. I was so in love with Mrs. Bad. There you know. go. All right. <laughs> so, but so do you see the comparison between Punk and the way he got over as an anti-hero with the way that Stone Cold got over sure. in the late nineties? And what's the common denominator with that? There I is a. There you go. Man. Yeah. That's exactly so, is that the fact that, you know, he was Stone Cold was taking on the corporation and the, the corporate honcho CM Punk was doing it and did it a little differently. But the end result is the same. And people loved it. Yeah. And let me just also mention how great Vince is. And of course, it's somebody who spent his entire life in the industry. Is anyone better with facial expressions and facial reactions than Vince McMahon? Is that a rhetorical or is that uh, a- I because I don't think there is that the bit where the camera zooms on him and he does the hard swallow is just it's brilliant. You know, you can fucking hate Vince McMahon. And I know a lot of people do. I, I'm not a big fan of, of his product and what he's done to it. But the on TV character of, quote, Mr. McMahon, he is gold. And when he does the hard swallow and, you know, some, whether it's the rock stone cold, whoever, and somebody has done something that he did not like or didn't appreciate. And he does the camera zooms in and he does the hard swallow. Like he does at the end of this match. It's fucking hilarious. And he does it so well. Yeah, he does. He's uh, you know, he, there are certain things he does well. Uh, I don't know currently, you know, if he's uh, I think he was on camera recently but I don't think he's they're putting him on camera as much. And on that note, Triple H apparently having uh, yes, I did read some that, sort yeah. of surgery. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, no, he's he's great. He's always been that way, too, though. You know what I mean? Even if you go back to the when he was an announcer and he would get all excited, you know, he was all he's always been. That's something he's always been very solid at. And, you know, it, it's funny because uh, we were we talked, I think it was last week. Uh, I made a comment about uh our old friend Alex Marvez yeah. and the way that he handles, uh, you know, the, the the facial reactions. OK, you know, if you go back and look at, you know, on YouTube, you can find WWF stuff from like the going back to about 76. I think there's a, a 1976 episode of All Star Wrestling on there. And when Vince is doing the interviews or the promos with the wrestlers, he has the ability uh, if somebody says something that he doesn't agree with or a heel makes a comment that Vince does this slow turn to the camera and just kind of like makes this expression like, or he'll roll his eyes. And Jim Ross was great at doing that too. in the, in the UWF and WCW and uh, Alex start watching some old Vince or Jim Ross to learn how to do a facial expression because he does that. And you know, it, he was great doing it almost 45 fucking years ago. You know, I mean, it's just really good. So the other point I wanted to make, obviously the whole scenario with punk, you know, going to quote, leave the promotion 
very, very uh, mind, you know, it, it calls to mind the whole Bret Hart situation. I'm sure that was the callback that they were looking for, much like Bret Hart did. Uh, we have to keep CM Punk away from the title so he doesn't leave the title with the promotion. Yeah, and that's essentially what it was. But, you know, again, this was I think the build up for this was done. Everything about this was so perfect. You know, the Bret Hart thing was always kind of especially with and that was a shoot, I guess. Right. So that yes. that would I guess we don't I don't think we're ever going to know uh, the real story with that. But, uh, yeah, there are a lot of similarities. The only thing I would say, I would say Bret Hart. His charisma was very understated. And we're CM Punk, it's certainly not. So there's a difference there. But I do like the comparison, CM Punk, Chicago, Bret Hart in uh, in Canada. And what we saw on AEW uh, last evening, John Moxley and Brian Pillman Jr. for Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yeah. I yeah. like that. I really, uh, because what it does is, in the, again, we keep saying this over and over, it makes the live crowd even fucking more whipped up into a frenzy, which translate to people sitting at home. You know, yeah. we're sitting here, and these guys are, you know, they're, they're going nuts. And I thought the whole Brian Pillman Jr. thing was actually pretty good. So uh, since we got on that topic very quickly, did you think, uh, and obviously I'm, I'm sure he, he they knew he was going to do it, the MGF line about, Brian's mom became a meth head. Wow. I was like, yikes. Talk about cutting to the fucking bone. I do believe, and I don't know for a fact, I thought Melanie was his stepmother. I, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but I, I didn't think, but yeah, Methany, I believe he called yes. it. Yes. <laughs> he had, but he had a couple of lines. He had the, uh, hey, Prager swallowed. Yes. Hey, Preggers. That was a funny line, too. Hey, Preggers was great. But I, I thought I, you know, and it made me wonder. First off, I thought, hey, that was one of the more amazing promos I'd ever seen. But it was really borderline. And yeah. obviously it was intended. Everybody knew. But sure. yeah. I think your mom should have swallowed on fucking live TV. <laughs> a little. Uh, yeah. But uh, boy, MJF boy, is is this guy. How old is he again? Uh, he's like 25, isn't he? This is that. This is an unbelievable story. When this is when this is said and done, and we, you know, the next 10 years, obviously, MJF. This is a different level of what we're seeing. This guy has got it. Yeah. So I'm going to get back to the AEW stuff and, and ask you a question about that. Just to finish up sure. on this match, uh, really good. I'll post a link to this match. Thank you, Kevin Orcutt, for recommending this match. Now I'm just going to say, Kevin, please, in the next. Three days after this episode comes out, don't send me 25 matches to. <laughs> Kevin has a has a tendency to do that. That's yes, all I'm going to say. So Wait. we do appreciate it, though, Kevin. I'm sorry it took a while, but this yes. was a good recommendation. I'm glad I watched it. Uh, you know, it, it really was enjoyable. Oh, and let me just say, uh, getting back to what you were saying about John Cena and the Make a Wish stuff. Sure. Uh, John Cena. What one of the things I love about John Cena is John Cena is not afraid to poke fun at himself. Uh, you know, like in some of the, let me, uh, some of the movies that I've seen him in, uh, you know, where he, uh, he, uh, what was the movie he did with Amy Schumer? It was like the only Amy Schumer movie that I liked where 
he uh, he's sitting in the theater with her and some guy, I think he calls him like Mark Wahlberg or something like that. And <laughs> Cena turns around, and he goes, Mark Wahlberg. He goes, come on. I got like 75 pounds on Mark Wahlberg. I'm Jack, you know, and it was just really funny the way he was able to make fun of himself. And he's made some other movies since then where he kind of makes fun of the fact, uh, you know, that people think he's just a meathead who lifts weights, you know. And so, uh, yeah, all credit to John Cena for that. OK, now getting back to AEW and what we saw, because uh, I Barry has watched the pay-per-view uh, from uh, the, the all out pay-per-view from I guess it'll be a week ago now when this comes out. Uh, I am like an hour into it. So one of the things I uh, I brought up and and Barry let's let's kind of spitball this. I said is WWF at this point here in 2021 and we've heard you know, first of all Triple H obviously having health issues we don't know how long he's going to be I mean he could be out a couple of weeks he could be out you know more than that. Uh, and Vince obviously is getting to a point where at some point there, there's going to be a turnover there, uh, whether it's because of his, uh, his ultimate demise or just because he, you know, he says, fucking I'm done with it. And what I asked Barry was, has AEW now positioned themselves where they're what WWF was maybe like 83 into 84 and Vince is turning into Vern. What do you think, Bear? Oh, that one's going to uh, cause me to stop and think. And, and you did mention this to me off air a couple of days ago or yesterday. Yeah, in, in some ways. I like is, to think I prep you, mister. Yeah. Uh, and I take copious notes when you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I do. <laughs> I think in some ways he's turning into Vern. Uh, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's a comparison. I, it's, you know, it's it's still different in the sense. I don't think Vince. I don't think Vince looks. Uh, their jobs are different. Vince is a multimillionaire. I don't think he's a billionaire, but he's a multimillionaire running a multimillion dollar company. And Vern was Russ. He was running a wrestling company. You know what I mean? It is really, yeah. You know, look, WWE is like in China and the middle East and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, and obviously merchandise and everything else that goes along with it. And, and just, there's so much more involved Vince to me. It, it strikes me as a businessman who's running a wrestling company now where I think 30 years ago that was totally reversed. He was a wrestling guy trying to run this business company. I, I don't see I don't see him as a wrestling guy anymore. And I a lot of that is because of what you just said, because he has become Vern in that regard that I think a lot of shit's just passing him by at this stage. Well, and and like, let's talk about some stuff recently, like the whole Roman Reigns. He was insistent for the longest time on keeping Roman Reigns as a baby face when the crowds were quite obviously turning against him and, you know, Vince was, you know, almost in a Vern Gagne esque stubbornness wanting to say, no, no, this is the guy that I want to, you know, have. And just and the people that are kind of leaving the ship, if you will, you know, and the, the talent that is now coming to AEW and it just kind of, you know, I, I'm not saying Tony Khan is Vince McMahon. Okay. I'm talking not about, Vince versus Tony Khan. I'm talking about AEW versus the WWE. Is that is that the place to go now? I mean, it, you know, I, I've is. heard I've heard that Kevin Owens' contract is up early next year. Is Kevin Owens going to show up in the AEW? You know, I, yeah, and I think the key with a lot of this too is that I think AEW from this point forward should only be signing the talent that is truly going to help them. And when I say that. 
look, you've signed CM Punk, uh, who was a free agent, but you did sign Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson, and Adam Cole, who had just come from the WWE. Uh, these are guys that are going to put forth. I mean, I'm so excited for the matches that these guys are going to be having. Uh, that's right up my alley. It's the type of wrestling I like. At the same time, they've also signed the Big Show and Mark Henry, which are two two dinosaurs that shouldn't be yeah. anywhere near a wrestling ring. So I think I, I think hopefully Tony Khan looks at this and said, okay, made sense. You know, we signed guys that were essentially lifers in the WWE. It's going to get some notoriety. But, you know, I don't think any of us want to see guys that we didn't want to see in the WWE now working in, a, in an AEW ring. You know, like that would be pointless. No, take, you know, I, I'll tell you. Best talent. That's what I'm trying to say. I'll tell you, the uh, when they were doing on the pay-per-view, uh, and I'm like an hour in, when they were doing the lead-up to the cage match, and they were talking about, all the difficulty that comes with being someone who's inside a, a steel cage. And they went to the interview, you know, and they showed the clip of Paul White saying the the cage is unforgiving. I've been in cage matches before. That's that's the perfect usage for for somebody like Paul White. And if they would have interviewed Mark Henry and use a clip like that to lead up something, use him, use them both as personalities within the promotion. When you go out and do some sort of live event at Paul White and Mark Henry out there taking photos and and you know. Telling the people to to order the paper that's great, but keep these guys away from the ring. And Mark Henry, as a uh, you know, doing the Alex Marvez bit, interviewing the people at ringside is is not good either. You have you can find good use for these people and what they have meant to the industry, no question. But you also have to understand that with that comes limitations, you know, and you need to recognize the limitations. I did want to mention. I just remembered one thing I'd forgotten to talk about with the uh, the Cena CM Punk match. As much as I enjoyed the match, can we just for a second mention how horrible the announced job was by Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler? Booker T was okay. Uh, I didn't have any problem with him, but but oh my God, I thought Michael Cole was horrible on the call of the match. And I'm sure Jerry Lawler is just telling things or saying things that are being you know voiced into his ear. But wow, I thought it was a really bad job by the commentary team. Yeah, I, I don't. It definitely didn't bother me as much as it bothered you. I'll tell you what I think. Uh, in so I, I do hate in the fact that AEW produces so much great stuff, yet people just tend to pick out the negative. Uh, you know, instead of focusing on all the amazing stuff, and everybody's an armchair booker, <clears throat> right? What? 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 But people are trying to take your job, but everybody is. You. But I, I got to tell you, Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross are horrific. And they literally have quit like they're every every show. There are multiple errors calling people the wrong name. Tony called somebody Chris last night and I forget who it was. And then he but he caught himself. But they they just don't seem to give a shit and they don't seem to care. And it's very bizarre to me because I do think the in-ring product is fantastic. Uh, I, I just. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I, and I got to tell you, the whole making Tony Giovanni like a personality like with right. Britt Baker that just is, is falling, you know, and when he's in the ring and someone takes the mic from him and he kind of holds his hand up. Oh, what I'm about sorry. Adam Cole last night though? Right. Yeah. And <laughs> talking about his wife and yeah, that was pretty good. But I, I tell you, I don't really have a problem with Excalibur. I think Excalibur. Nope, I agree. <laughs> stuff. He's good. And I tell you, uh, they should have Taz as a commentator too. Well, and, go ahead. Not to interrupt you, but I will. So first off, Jeff, I agree 100% about Excalibur. Check. 
he is uh, he is out of that announced team. He's the only one that comes off as credible at this stage. With that, people focus on his mask like like we should give a shit. I mean, there are guys getting into wrestling rings wearing masks if you want to talk about absurd. So I don't what the, the fuck does it matter if an announcer has a mask on? It doesn't. Uh, so that I absolutely agree. I think Excalibur does a great job. What was your other point? Because I was going to bring that too. Taz, my only issue last night with Taz is it, I don't think Taz can do both. I, it, to me, there is no. And logic, that's, a, that's a fair point. Yeah, logic is gone. He's 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 Taz on commentary. He's joking, and then all of a sudden, he's this badass manager during the commentary when CM Punk comes out, and then thirty minutes later, they're joking and laughing again. It, to me, there it just doesn't work. If you want to have him be a badass manager, that's great then don't have his guys wrestle that week or don't have any sort of angle. Uh, I don't think he should be doing both within the show. That, for me, that doesn't actually work. Yeah, no, that's a very fair point. And one of the other things I mentioned to Barry, and I feel like we got to address it, sure. uh, Hook, uh, the son. Uh, first of all, an all-time bad hairstyle. Uh, second of all, as I told <laughs> Barry, this guy has about as much physical credibility going towards a ring as I do. Okay. Or, or as Marco stunt does, uh, you know, he, I will say the, the match I saw, what was it? It was Hobbs against, uh, Oh, I forgot who he was wrestling the other night. Yeah. Where the guy did the, the plancha oh, outside Dante Martin. Yes. And, and uh, did it. And it was beautifully timed where hook drops down. The guy jumped over him yes. and landed on Hobbs. That was a very well-timed spot. Really good job. But the whole thing, like, you know, like we're hook, who looks like he weighs about a buck 65 and he's going, what, what are you going to do? What, you know, like he's supposed to be some sort of physically intimidating presence. It's like if Marco stunt went up and slapped the big show, you know, like, what are you going to do? I mean, come on at some point, you know, these guys aren't Jushin fucking Liger. Uh, there has to be a little bit of, you know, something going on where they're, they're fr physically credible enough to be in, in a position like that. You know, I mean, if you want to make your son a manager, like like Marco Stunt, that's fine. But if you're gonna make him be some sort of uh, wrestler where he has a physical presence, I'm sorry, it's just lost on me, Bear. Hook has that go away heat, and not in a good way, as as people will say. He he comes across as this snotty kid, not 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 snotty like in the way that MJF is, obviously, but this kid that uh, would be on the streets and. Uh, you know, pickpocketing people or getting in. He just he just comes across as this kid that's just like incorrigible. I just okay. Don't like you, know, you know who he is? I'll give you a very good comparison, sure. and I'll throw another movie comparison at you. I love it. He's Matt Dillon in My Bodyguard. There you go. You there know, you go. That's Matt exactly Dillon, who would never fight his fights. He you know was kind of a pipsqueak, but he was such an asshole, and he had the yep. friend that was the tough guy. And, and you know, if they presented him that way, it'd be great. If they turn Marco stunt heel and presented Marco stunt that way as the Matt Dillon character from my bodyguard, it'd be excellent. But I don't see how you could present him this as this badass, you know, like, like Matt Dillon was not the guy that wanted to have the fight in my bodyguard. He wanted to have his, you know, his, his tough guy, you know, yeah. fight, uh, fight Ricky. Yeah. The guy, the guy who looked about 35 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so anyway, that's just a, another side note. So now, Barry, let's talk about <laughs> something else. You know, Barry talked about last week his weather-related drama. Barry, real quick, I want to give you some uh, Xfinity-related drama with Mrs. Bowdrin and I. So 
Mrs. Bowdrin and I, when we first moved up here to lovely northern Georgia, uh, we uh, decided to go with Xfinity uh, for our service, our cable services and stuff. And so uh, we had the uh, the other day, oh, I want to say we started having little issues with the modem, okay, where stuff would, you know, like, you know, where the uh, the box, like it's searching for things, the circular um, motion is going on, like it's trying to, uh, what do they call, uh, Lou, please, I'm a, such an idiot, tell me what I'm looking for here, like it's trying to connect, okay, and it's not connecting, and so, and then it would start working again, it was very odd, and then a few days would go by, and it would do it again, and you know, it's like trying to connect, and like I'm watching YouTube or something like that, and like like in the middle of a, a show or middle of a match, all of a sudden, uh, the modem is trying to connect so it can show, you know, the program, and I'm going, oh, this is weird, and so then we get an error message, okay? So my wife calls up Xfinity and says, you know, uh, we got some sort of problem here. Can you guys fix it from your end? It, it's showing uh, error number 102. And w this is actually pretty humorous. The, the, the guy at Xfinity goes, uh, we, don't have, we don't have that error in our, our book. It shouldn't be showing that. <laughs> so it's basically showing an error message that doesn't exist, which is pretty hilarious. So we continue with the guy, you know, and, and we're talking to the guy who obviously is from another country. Uh, and I, I always love when you call and you get somebody who's obviously from another country and their name is always like Billy, you know, it's like, uh, some incredibly Americanized version of their name. Uh, so, uh, you, hello, my name is Billy. <laughs> he was born <laughs> Billy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. My real name is William. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but so anyway, so the guy is trying to figure out a problem. He says, no, he goes, apparently the problem is, is that your modem is basically taking a crap. So you need to go to the local Xfinity store and switch out your modem. Okay. So, okay. So we disconnect the modem. Okay. I'll be honest. Mrs. Bowdrin disconnected the modem. That's not my strong suit. And so uh, we go to the Xfinity store. So we go to the Xfinity store. Now here's the interesting conspiracy theorist in me, Barry. How long do you think our contract was when we first moved here? Oh, so conventional wisdom, which I possess none of, wants to say it was for the standard 12 months. However, I know Xfinity is owned by Comcast, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So was it a three or five year agreement? It was a two year agreement. Uh, and at the Xfinity store, we found out, oh, by the way, your original contract is due to expire within the next couple of days, oh. right when the modem went out. Hmm. That just seemed like an awful big coincidence. Yeah. Barry, what do you think? No, no coincidence whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at this point, of course, we went in, we said, okay, look, we just, uh, we want to swap out modem for whatever modem is. Uh, and the only thing we want to do, you know, I, I will say one of the things with the pandemic was, for a while during the pandemic, you would get like free HBO or free stars or free Showtime, whatever. And so, uh, you know, we noticed that the stars that we still had, I said, you know, if we're paying for stars, we don't want stars anymore. Uh, the stars has like six movies and they show them on continuous loop. And so anyway, so I said, I want to keep HBO and I want to keep the sports package uh, and maybe Showtime. But the rest of the stuff you can you can dump. Uh, okay, so fine. And, you know, we get the upgraded modem, okay, which I have this suspicion is going to crap out in two years, Barry, but that's another story. So, <laughs> exactly. anyway, yeah. we're at the store. So, the girl goes, okay, so because it's a new modem, uh, da, da, your uh, your cost is going up $10 a month, something like that. Wow. And here's what your, your price is going to be. And she gives us a price, okay? 
uh, which I will not reveal because, quite frankly, I'm ashamed. And so, uh, but it's like a package that includes our phone services and you know all the all the different kind of stuff. And so uh, Kim goes, okay, so this is our price per month. Yes, okay. So we get home and uh, we're doing. And so I guess we get an email uh, confirming all this. Except when we get the email confirming all of it, Kim looks, and the price is. The price that she was quoted, that was $10 a month, more than we were paying previously, has now gone up $40 a month. Wow. So Kim's like, what the hell? You know, because she doesn't use the, the real bad word. What the hell? Why is this going on? Uh, you know, and so guess what? She's back on the phone to Xfinity again and our friend Billy. And so uh, he says, well, according to this, uh, we ha we have you dropping uh, HBO. We have you dropping the sports package. And football season's beginning in a week or so, uh, Barry, or actually the time of this, uh, within a couple of days. Uh, by now, uh, football's already started. Go Vikings. Anyway, so she said, well, wait, you, you dropped the sports package? And, of course, at this point, Mr. Bowdrin's ears perk up. What? What the hell? <laughs> and so she's like, no, we didn't want that. Well, uh, I'm looking at your package, and this is what – the lady at the Xfinity store has done. She dropped our HBO. She dropped all these cable uh, movie uh, channels and the sports package. And we're like, we absolutely didn't say that. We specifically told her the opposite. So now Billy uh, has to change our package. And we're like, Jeff, is Billy looking at your package also? Well, Mrs. Bowdrin occasionally looks at my package and, okay. you know, an incredible disappointment, but that's another story altogether. Uh, you know, but what the fuck, Xfinity? Who are these people that you have working in your retail stores that completely fuck the, you know, oh my God, just talk about, I'm trying to think of some really cute euphemism here. Screw the goat. I don't know. But Screw the goat. <laughs> that's a new I one I up myself. Yeah. What the fuck's going on with Xfinity and Comcast, Barry? Fuck Xfinity and Comcast. Sweet Lou, by the way, if you can isolate that, the uh, the line there where Jeff said, she's looking at my package. <laughs> yes, That's that what... was, that was something on the opening of the broadcast. I didn't want to interrupt your story uh, because it was so good. But I got to tell you, I'm sitting here going, man, don't forget. Don't forget. <laughs> that was a great line. Yeah, so something happened similar to um, it, when I – so when I moved and I got my own apartment – I went with uh, Fios by Verizon because my cell phone is with Fios. So they had a great deal. It's like uh, unlimited. I, I forget all the details, but essentially you can get internet for $39 a month or $39.99 a month. So I call and I say, yeah, you know, I've been with Verizon Wireless for, I don't know, 15, 20 years at this point, but I want to take advantage of this offer. And she goes, yeah, that's right. It's only $39.99 per month if you have your own router. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I don't have a, I mean, who the fuck has their own router? Like, you know, well, why I would got I have one in the basement? Uh, yeah, I, why I, would I have my own lot. router? Why would I have a you know router? Who has their own router? Greg fucking good because he works for them. <laughs> but the average person doesn't have their own router. She goes, well, that's an additional $15 a month. So $39.99 is now $54.99. So I said, okay, how much is it? How, if I want to go buy a router, she said, you can get a good router, probably $150. So at that point, I'm doing the math. I'm going, fucking Christ, really? Like, <laughs> really? This is what you're doing? So, yeah, I hate all these companies with all. Look, even the apartment complex where I live, Jeff, catch this. I have not lived in an apartment, what, in 20 years. So I move in, and I, my rent is what my base rent is, right? And I'm like, okay, that's good. And then he said, of course, you know, we do have the amenities fee, which is $30, $30 a month. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, what if I don't want to use the amenities? He goes, well, I'm sorry. It's all part of it. And I'm like, well, why don't you just put that in the rent then? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he goes, he goes, well, we like to break it out so that people can see it. And in my head, I'm going, no, you're being deceptive. That's exactly what this is. Because if I don't have the option to get rid of it, an amenities fee, then, you know, and you're, you're doing it separately, it's being deceptive. And then they also have a trash fee. That's $15 a month. It's actually, that's kind of cool. They come to your apartment, you put your trash outside your door and they pick it up every night, but that's $15 a month. So on top of my rent, I'm already $45 or more. And then of course I have a dog, which is now an additional $35. So what is that? That's $80 per month on top of my rent that I am paying. Let's just just say that Ozzy is worth it though. Oh, no. It, yeah, take out. Look, I get the dog fee, but when you're breaking out amenities and trash fee, but it's not it's not optional. It's mandatory. Yeah. You fucking put that right in the rent. That's ridiculous to keep it separate. It's deceptive. And that's exactly what this whole situation that you just described is. Yeah, your your modem or your modem router goes off two days before your two year lease is over. Uh, yeah. yeah. OK, that's a that's a got They call that a coincidence, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'll tell you what's not deceptive, though, Barry. Sure. That's our friend Ian Douglas and his new book that's coming out about Brian Blair. <laughs> Woo! That was pretty Ooh, sweet. Segway. Yes, that was so. very sweet. So we did, and I, I we want to thank all of the brother shippers. Really nice post by uh, our friend Frankie Seacrest uh, over the last few days. Where thank he you, Frankie. Yep, basically said, I will support anybody that advertises or has anything to do with the show. He is a uh, he's a tremendous friend to me uh, and just a great guy. Let me just that, say, hold, hold sure. on one second. Frankie, that was such a nice post and uh, such a nice gesture in your part. You can Facebook message me and suggest a match to be wow. considered for a breaking game. Boom, boom. That's the kind of generosity we have Barry. Go ahead, please. That is. And, uh, but yeah, but to that end, uh, we love seeing that and, uh, and we exceeded it. I think he is double where Ian is double where he wanted to be or what he was asking for with the Indiegogo. However, you know, the more the merrier. So the book is scheduled pretty much the next month, Jeff, to be released. At that point, the book will be released and then all of the additional items will also be mailed. So I, I did speak to Ian this week and uh, I said, hey, what did you want us to plug? Because, you you know, you've, you've doubled your goal. And he said, well, you know what? The more the merrier. And maybe we, you guys can talk about the uh, all of the perks that if you pledge a certain amount, if this there's is what anything that our group likes, it's perks. It's Please. perks. And uh, yeah. And so this is pretty good. The book by itself, $25. Uh, you can, it's called Selecting a Perk. Uh, the book, truth be told, 25 bucks. Autographed, it is 39 Two copies of the book, $71. Two signed copies, uh, $71. And then you get in this, the cool stuff to me. You get a book and a killer bee mask. That is seventy four dollars. I uh, I've got a mask collection going. Uh, I I did you ever get an assassin mask by the way when he did the first fan uh, fest? You know what I'm trying to think. I believe in the basement I may have the uh, the assassin mask. Now that you mention it, yes. Yeah, and more meaningful obviously since he's passed sure. on. Sure. How 
how happy that we actually did that. That was his suggestion, by the way. But I've got I have a saint mask. Uh, I've got an assassin mask. I've got a few. Uh, and actually, I'll make an announcement. Should I do it now, Jeff? I'll wait till Ian's done and then I'll make a big announcement. Mm-hmm. But what I was saying was the killer bee mask, which I do not have, but I want. That is $74. And then I, I mentioned this to you last week. Brian had worked as the champ in the mid-Atlantic region. I believe this was briefly. You can also get a book and a champ mask, uh, $74. Uh, you can get a book in both masks for 109 or two books in two masks for 139 So, And then he's got some collector sets. Uh, I don't know exactly what those entail, uh, but he's got a collector set. Oh, that's one-of-a-kind action figure set featuring Brian Blair and Steve Kern as they appeared during the run as the NWA United States Tag Team Champions in the NWA Florida Territory, signed by both Brian and Steve Kern. And Steve Kern is Brian's closest friend, I believe. So Steve is involved with this, but I'm excited to see this. This is a 472 page autobiography of professional wrestling star B. Brian Blair. I will answer the question that is often asked. Brian devotes as much time to politics and Brian, I think could run for office twice in Tampa. Uh, he devotes as much time to that as, and this I'm quoting Ian on this as he does to his tag team with Abdullah the Butcher in Japan. (laughs) It's only a couple of pages. So if you're hesitant about this book because you feel Brian's going to be all political, he's not. This is really covering his wrestling journey and all this stuff. There's a lot of ribs in here. Some of the ribs are a little rough, as we found out last week. And there's a lot of sex stories. Exactly, Jeff. I know you and I will be getting the book and automatically going to the index looking for sex stories. So, yes. So we encourage it's like getting penthouse, but only for the letters to form, you know? So, uh, yeah. It all started the same way. I I can't believe I'm writing your magazine about what happened to me. Yeah, exactly. It's right. (laughs) You're writing a magazine and telling them what happened to you. All right. Enjoy that. Yeah, the, the lady that lived behind me when I was uh, 19, uh, she <laughs> right. decided to take her clothes off by the yeah. pool one day. My girlfriend, so, uh, yeah, exactly. we'll, we'll go into a whole whole different segment on the show about the uh, Letters to Four magazine. <laughs> so, Barry, you know, we were talking about uh, the different TV shows on HBO, and we were talking about, uh, you know, Bosch and The Wire and, and all those other, Breaking Bad and uh, Boardwalk Empire. Barry, you and I both had a chance recently to sit down and on Netflix watch Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of South Florida, the new documentary by Billy Corbin. And holy shit, what a great show, Barry. What a fantastic show it was. And uh, you and I both have raved about the original series of The Cocaine Cowboys, which I think was one and two. And uh, if you, you know, if you spent any time, if you lived in South Florida during the 80s, uh, you know, as far back as maybe the late 70s into the early 90s, your life in somehow was affected by cocaine. You, you may not have known it. But let's be honest. I know yes. some people that live in South Florida currently whose lives were really affected by cocaine. I'm not mentioning any names, but anyway, I bet, I bet, but it was, look, you couldn't walk into a disco or a nightclub and go to the bathroom without people doing coke. It just was. And I realized this took place all over the U S it wasn't, but South Florida was the hub of this. Uh, and all the coke basically came in and out of South Florida. So, uh, it was a big deal. Billy Corbin too. We have talked about Billy Corbin. I would love to get him on as a guest 
uh, on the podcast. He is he puts forth stellar documentary work. All of his stories seem to gravitate towards South Florida. He's a local South Florida boy, but he really does amazing work. This was great. And you actually turned me on to it. And I was glad that I was able to go back and to watch this. And this is probably about a month ago, maybe a little longer. But I remember we had a conversation right after and we were talking about the one guy, kind of the younger, good looking guy, dumb as a dumb as a stump. Billy Falcone. That's and his wife, the the and I'll call her a bimbo because uh, that's really what she came off to me is this very shallow, superficial, good looking blonde, but just a horrible person. Oh, no, no, no. That was not Willie. That was uh, one of their uh, sort of the, the guys that worked for Willie and Sal. Right, um, right, right. Willie was the partner of Sal. Yeah. Sal was the brains and Willie was kind of the uh, I guess his is on his right hand, but, yeah. uh, it, this was a great story. And we, I didn't, I don't know about you, but I didn't know anything about these guys. Like I had never heard about them and that they were such major players. Uh, were you familiar with these guys? No, no I was not. Uh, the first two cocaine cowboy stories, uh, f- uh focus more on the Colombian, uh, side of the story. Uh, and the, uh, what was the, uh, what was the lady, the, the godmother? It was, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Esmeralda or something like that. Yep who was like, look like, you know, somebody's mom or, or that, that lived across the street from you. And she was like this, just this woman you did not fuck with. And, uh, you know, cause she would, uh, she would kill an entire neighborhood and not think twice about it. But this one focuses more on the South Florida, you know, the, the guys that would, uh, would bring it in. And it's really, it was an interesting story because it's two guys that essentially dropped out of high school that just started off, you know, basically dealing small time shit, you know, uh, nothing of a mate. And then it, it started, started growing exponentially, you know, and, and to where these guys just had stupid kind of Tony Montana money. And, yeah. you know, it was just ridiculous that they were, and besides all that, they were apparently nationally known speedboat racers, and they were funding all the speedboat race, uh, racing and all the tournaments through because of their cocaine. And, you know, and it was like something where you would turn on ESPN, uh, you know, uh, and they would be, you know, showing speedboat racing. And these guys would be like, you know, the guys that were winning all the races. And, oh, yeah, by, you know, by the way, they're also uh, these uh, probably the biggest cocaine dealers in the entire country. That's what made it so crazy to me is that they would show these guys doing the speedboat racing and they would, it seemed like they were on television multiple times. And at the same time, as all this was taking place, they were under heavy investigation for the cocaine trafficking and distribution. So th- that was the one thing is these guys, they, they almost loved, or I guess they didn't almost, they loved the limelight as much as anything else. They loved being out in public. And the one guy, Sal, uh, it starts off where you think he's almost a decent human being in some ways until a lot of people wind up getting murdered. But Jeff, we haven't even brought up our favorite character yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bad oh. representation of every Cuban woman that I ever knew in South Florida. Oh, she was terrible. So she is, uh, she was Sal's girlfriend or mitch- mistress, whatever for, I guess a couple of decades. And whenever she speaks at the end of it, you get the nervous. (laughs) Now it's cute. The first 40 times, but it literally is the entire documentary. Marilyn Bonachea. 
I believe well, it's that's her it. I think so. Yeah. And she is, uh, she's a little bit full of herself, let's just say. And yeah. she was the major reason why this whole empire came crumbling down was that she basically, uh, uh, Turn the turned evidence, uh, you know, on them. And uh, but, you know, the, I will say that this is in six episodes, this is a real multi-layered story because uh, the first part of the show starts off with these guys. There are these young kids in high school and here, you know, they got all these pictures and, uh, you know, Billy Corbin did tremendous research on this. Yeah. And then uh, you you go on to like the next episode is about like uh, how they're caught and they're put on trial and you're sitting there going I'm on like the second or third episode how are they going to flesh the story out well let's just say the first trial there was some things going on bear that were uh hmm a little yes. bit sketchy and I thought that was great yeah they were actually buying off the jurors well the jury yes. foreman <laughs> The jury sure. foreman who they, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there, there are so many and that you just used a great word. There are so many layers to this entire thing. Uh, I, I was riveted by it. It's, is there anything, and we used to talk about documentaries a lot in the, the early days of the show, which is four years ago at this point, but yeah, you and I were just kids. We were just right. We were thin. We had full heads of hair. It was crazy, but I was I think my first couple of shows. I had a ponytail. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what a good looking ponytail it was as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, but yeah, but, highly recommended for me. Yeah. And so what I did, uh, and let me just say that the, the multi layers that I talk about is how they go to trial the first time. Uh, there are some, mm, let me just say problems with the first trial. Then they continue, uh, guys going on the lamb and, uh, then they're, they're caught. They're doing, uh, oh, Barry, this is yet another movie reference, the James Conn movie, Hiding in Plain Sight. Remember that one? And, you know, so uh, so these guys are basically hiding in plain sight. They've got all this money. Should they leave the country? No, oh, no, let's go to Palm Beach. We'll live there because who would ever think? Or let's live on the uh, on the intercoastal in Fort Lauderdale because they would certainly never think to look for us there. And uh, it's just, you know, it, it's really crazy. So what I did, Barry is I reached out to a couple friends of mine who are lawyers here in uh, the lovely Broward County area. And I said, you know, I'd like you as a lawyer to look at this because part of what happens and, you know, like episode three, four, and five, they focus a lot on the trial aspect. Okay. So uh, if you're a big fan of watching the uh, true crime uh, documentaries uh, on TV, you, my wife loves that shit. And you watch this, and it's really an interesting look at the South Florida legal community at the time and some of the problems as lawyers they accounted, uh, they encountered because of what and who they were dealing with. So now, say you're some big drug kingpin and you've got all this money that you gained uh, not by working nine to five, needless to say, Barry, and you need a high profile lawyer to, rec you know, to, to represent you and you have to pay that high price lawyer, where are you getting that money bear? Where are you getting yeah. that money that you're paying for that lawyer? So if you're the lawyer and you're getting, oh, let's, I'm just going to use an arbitrary number, like hundred thousand dollars because they want to put you in prison for life. So you pay your lawyer. Well, that hundred grand that the lawyer's taking, that was money that was gained through drug trafficking. So that started leading to some problems for the lawyers. Uh, and that's a very interesting aspect. 
And then, of course, it as the show wraps up, you see uh, what happened to all these people. You see what happened to old <laughs> Marilyn <laughs> Bonachea. Yeah, trust me, the biggest fucking heel on this show, as you watch it, ends up being Marilyn Bonachea. Uh, she yep. just really gets super annoying, super fast. Uh, and but one of the things I think is very compelling is there's I want to say the vast majority of the people that were involved in this that did prison time have done their time and they're out. OK, the one guy and I'm not even going to say who it is because I want people to watch this show that uh, was convicted, was convicted of not the major charge. He was convicted of like lesser offenses, but he was given the maximum sentences on all the lesser charges. So it's almost like there's this turn at the end with this guy who, let's face it, you know, did some really bad shit, Barry. And what happens is at the end, you're left asking, is what this guy was convicted for, should he still be, because this guy's in, you know, uh, uh, what is the name of the prison? Uh, Lou, if you know, uh, chime in, uh, feel free. There's a prison in Colorado that is like the supermax prison where like, you know, the, the Unabomber and, uh, the guys that uh, you know are really the the guys that you don't like. One of one of the uh, terrorists that uh, blew up, uh, uh, like the guy from Oklahoma City. He's there. Uh, these are real fucking bad guys. So they put him in this supermax prison. And so this guy that was this drug kingpin was convicted of lesser charges, but given the maximum sentence for that. So then the question is asked: Should that guy really be in that prison for what he was convicted of? So anyway, let, let me just point out now. Uh, do you have any comment, Barry, before I go on? No, no, you're, you're, that's a great. Okay. So I reached out to a couple of friends of mine, uh, who are attorneys in South Florida. And I said, I'd like you to watch this program. And as attorneys, tell me what you think of the show. Uh, you know, what was your presentation? Uh, give me a couple paragraphs like we do on our movie reviews, Barry. <clears throat> well, Dan Callahan, official friend of the show, friend of mine, and a uh, member of the brothership, Aaron Brick and Kevin Bowden and Barry. He sent me a review of the movie Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. Uh, let's just say that the part about two paragraphs, Dan did not quite grasp that concept. So it's a little bit on the lengthy side, but I think he offers some compelling stuff. So uh, here we go, Barry. Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami should be required material for all first-year law students, which, by the way, I think that's an excellent point, and I absolutely agree with that. Billy Corbin hit it out of the ballpark again with this series. What an amazing journey of two kids from Miami. Sal Magruda and Willie Falcone, who rose from the streets of Miami as dropouts from Miami Senior High School to running a multi-billion dollar drug organization. Yes, that's correct. Not multi-million folks, multi-billion dollar industry. The, the legal drama that unfolded became the focus of the story as opposed to the actual drug dealing and boat running that is left for shows like Miami Vice. This series directly brought to light how lawyers skate a very thin line between representing your clients and being able to collect a fee or potentially committing money laundering by accepting funds from criminal proceeds to satisfy a fee. After Sal and Willie were fugitives for years, avoiding drug trafficking indictments, ultimately they had to face reckoning with the legal process. Their lawyers, Roy Black, Frank Rubino, and Jeffrey Weiner, we're lucky, and I wonder if the government attempted to claw back their fees after it was established that their fees came from illicit proceeds that formed the basis for Sal's fraud and money laundering conviction in 2002. As Barry said, uh, this goes back to like the late 70s. So this is like a story. It's like takes place like 40 years, Barry. 
So, yeah. uh, and they do it in six episodes. I imagine uh, the Dan continues. I imagine they were satisfied that the lawyers had to withdraw due to ultimate conflicts of interest upon the ultimate discovery that their fees were paid with illicit, illicit drug proceeds. I myself was once appointed to a client charged with murder for hire after two of the best lawyers had clawback proceedings. By the way, I think that's the first time the words clawback has ever Ooh, been used good word on too. this show. So good, good word uh, usage there, Dan. Uh, let me see. Uh, both lawyers kept their fee, notwithstanding the fact that the proceeds from illicit funds sourced payment of their fees. One was paid $175,000 total. The others was to be paid $225,000, but only got one of his $75,000 installed payments. They were dealing with some good, uh, good-sized chunks of cash here, Bear. Yeah. Uh, I have too much respect for them to reveal their names. Oh, Dan will not break kayfabe on this, Barry. By <laughs> and we're nowhere close to being placed on notice of the potential dilemma, as in Sal and Willie's cases. It also was my professional standpoint that any continued boasting about winning the first case, all while knowing that the 1994 verdict was fixed through jury tampering, puts a bad taste in my mouth for all three, specifically Albert Krieger. Let me let me just uh, stop there and talk about Albert Krieger. Yes. One of the great parts of the show, Barry, and I think I told you about this, was that Albert Krieger talked about how he was beginning to experiencing uh, some problems in hearing. And so if you remember, well, there's another movie callback. Of course, Austin Powers, uh, the, the man of mystery, the original one, where he talked about how I have no inner monologue. And he talks out loud. Well, apparently... Albert Krieger, during the uh, jury examination, or, or I'm sorry, during the opening statements by the government in the very first trial, uh, they're they're talking about everything that they're going to prove. And so Albert Krieger basically thinks he's muttering to himself. And when the prosecutor says, we're going to prove this, Albert Krieger goes, oh, God, that's just fucking devastating. And doesn't realize that he's saying it out loud. And that everybody in the courtroom heard him. It's fucking hilarious. So if you watch the show, look for that part. It's very funny. And they bring uh, that back and they they throw that back in his face, remember? Yeah. So back to Dan's review. Even though they were never implicated in jury tampering or money laundering, for that matter, it seems that he, uh, the professional credibility they earned was never diminished by the fact that the trial was fixed. <clears throat> also, and this is something we haven't touched upon, uh, they live... They uh, put a list of witnesses out in a uh, a magazine that goes out to prisons called, quote, The Champion. So that basically all the guys that are in the joint now know who are going to be witnesses in this case. Yep. So if one of those guys happened to be in the joint, uh, maybe, maybe things weren't going to go well for that person. Uh, let's see. Uh, this most likely resulted in the deaths of several key witnesses, according to the prosecution, albeit no one was ever successfully prosecuted for the alleged hit by Colombian cartel hitmen or connected other than Sal. In fact, Sal was acquitted of the, quote, witness tampering via murder charges, in large part due to our famous local criminal defense attorney, Rod Vereen, uh, who destroyed the credibility of the linchpin witnesses as to those charges. Rod was only successful in beating the life felony charges, but not the several lesser charges and the 43 count in He was charged with 43 different charges, Bear. Wow. <clears throat> in the end, the judge sentenced Sal to consecutive maximum sentences. By that, what he means is, just say if you're charged with two different offenses and you get 10 years consecutive, that means you're doing 20 years, Barry. Not you get 10 years, 
serve for the first one, and then you start the 10 years for the next one. So this guy gets uh, uh, convicted of 43 charges. And so even though they're lesser offenses, he's got to serve the maximum. Uh, you know, And again, just uh, using an example here, he got one year on 43 charges. He got more than that, but I'm just using an example. So he would be serving not one year. He would be serving one year 43 times consecutively. So uh, that's that's part of the reason at the end of the uh, series that you're left to wonder if Sal has kind of been uh, screwed over a bit by the government because he's serving all this extra time that uh, because of what he was convicted on uh, was not fair as opposed to what they kind of sort of know that he did. You get my meaning, Bear? Yeah, and that makes sense, too. And I mean, the truth was, it, you know what it is? It kind of reminds a little bit of the OJ situation. It's like, you know, it, 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 uh, the theory was OJ was guilty. He wasn't convicted. Uh, but at the same time, they got him on like these other charges and he wound up doing time for something that, you know, I think in a lot of cases, people would have gotten off. I think this is very, very, very similar. If they can't get you on what they what they think that they have you on. They're going to try to get you on something else. Yeah. So uh, just to continue with Dan's uh, rambling here, uh, as brought out and compared in the series, not only was the main theme of the prosecution identical to the untouchables, but the cast is eerily similar in appearance. First of all, you could replace Kevin Costner and the accountant from the untouchables with the two prosecutors in this case. No offense, but those two guys reminded me of cornbread astronauts from the right stuff. We're referencing a lot of old movies here, Barry. I like that. Uh, let's see. Of course, you couldn't switch out Conry or Andy Garcia and the Italian FBI agent who closes in on Sal's girlfriend as a ringer for Garcia. The smiles are so similar. And just as in The Untouchables, Sal's lifelong girlfriend who managed the illicit payments while Sal was awaiting trial was needed to establish, oh, Barry, how the ledger, how the ledger made sense. The fake names assigned to the actual payoffs ranging from detention deputies at the Miami-Dade County Jail to prison wardens, oh, the Miami-Dade County Jail, Barry, uh, to attorneys, investigators, and judges who all seem to be in on the fix. Ultimately, this is a sad case that demonstrated the ills of prosecuting drug kingpins and the fact that witnesses who are named in any type of case are always susceptible, I like, I like Dan's turn of phrase here, to getting in the way of bullets. Ooh. The jury tampering cases would never have occurred if the attorney general would have accepted the 20-year sentence that they had offered. Instead, the United States took an ass-fucking, that's Ooh. the use of the word ass-fucking, yeah. uh, for over 10 years and ultimately had to fight back with extreme prejudice, which is another good movie, by the way, with Nick Nolte. Ass-fucking a legal term, Jeff? I, well, you know, I have seen a lot of legal documents in my 33 yes. plus year. I don't recall ass fuck, a motion to deny ass fucking. I don't remember. It. Maybe I'll check with Dan. Maybe he can clear that up with me. <laughs> okay. uh, let, let's see. I guess. Uh, did you ever see Extreme Prejudice? By the way, Nick Nolte. That was a that was a good movie. I I, whatever he plays like a Texas Ranger or something. I think. Yeah. Uh, I guess in a way, all the lives destroyed by the insistence of the attorney general not agreeing to the deal was wasted when you look at the end result. Only one individual is still in prison. Willie Falcone is a free man, albeit deported to the Dominican Republic and whereabouts unknown. Also, his brother, who was eventually arrested, pled to 11 years. The brother living in Orlando got popped riding his bike with his wife. That was kind of uh, actually kind uh, yeah. of funny. To me. Uh, I think the whole operation stunk. 
And the FBI agents and the lawyers shouldn't be smiling when you see the end results. I agree that they had to ensure the integrity of the jury system was intact, but they should have anticipated the tampering. I don't understand how the prosecution didn't realize that the foreperson was on the take after he, on his own, asked for the jury to be sequestered. It was almost telegraphing by Krieger when he welcomed the fact that the jury wanted to be sequestered. Should we blame the judge, the prosecution? If you think Willie Falcone isn't sitting on a shitload of money somewhere and the saga of the Cowboys is over, think again. Ooh, strong wording there by Dan. This story reminds me of the Star Wars saga and order of the release of each film. Like episodes four, five, and six, the 94 verdict came out first, but like episodes one, two, and three told was the prequel for Star Wars, the 2002 trial was more about what happened before the 94 verdict was rendered. Dan, apparently a big Star Wars fan. Hey, Barry, do you like Star Wars? Not really. Yeah. Okay, I, I like the first, uh, what do you call, uh, the very first Star Wars and the Empire yeah. Strikes Back. After that, not a huge fan. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, to think uh, he is a free man is bewildering. A couple of things to note in conclusion. Ugh, let's just say we're not quite there yet. I've had clients in this position, both as witnesses to murder and defendants charged with drug trafficking, as well as witness tampering. I always consider my safety and my family when taking on cases and realize that desperate people do desperate things. So the key is don't put yourself in a desperate situation and cover your ass. One thing I can say is that the fat lawyer who was killed, ooh, a little spoiler alert there. Once you see the fat guy, you'll know he gets uh, whacked. Uh, let's see. And subject of one of my uh, one of the murder charges looked a lot like my fat ass if I would have taken a bullet in the back <laughs> of the head. Shit, even the blazer he wore was wearing on the crime scene photos dead in his office with his face not even showing. It looks strikingly familiar to the portly backside of quote-unquote Dan Callahan, particularly when he takes a dive on the ground after drinking too much rum on an empty stomach. Ugh, anyway, uh, Dan goes on. Uh, let me just say, Dan, I appreciate it. I, we're we're kind of going on. I really appreciate all your efforts. And I will say also, uh, just to conclude, uh, Dan Rosenberg, who's also in our group, uh, Dan was late on his homework assignment because, quite frankly, Dan was on vacation with his family, and I get that. But Dan did say uh, his thoughts very quickly, very typical of how the prosecution keeps tunnel vision in a trial, even when it's clear they need a shift of strategy. Difference between defense lawyers and prosecutors. Ooh, good point by Danny, and almost very similar to what we talked about earlier about the tunnel vision that the WWE might have. So they're the prosecutors in the story, and the AEW would be the defense attorneys. They've got a new vision, Bear. What oh, I do you like think? It. Yes, I, like, I, yeah. I tie it. You I'm do. A Albert Krieger, too. You brought him up. So Albert Krieger, to me, you know who Albert Krieger is? He's a male version of Honey Chandler from Bosch. <laughs> that's a great That's a great it's, comparison. Yeah. It's a lawyer that, and when they're not on your side, you're going to hate them with an extreme passion. But I got to tell you, as I'm watching, and I hated Albert Krieger, I just hated everything he was about. At the same time, I, I said to myself, if I ever get into legal trouble, yes. Albert Krieger is the guy I want to call. And Albert Honey Chandler, Krieger, very similar. That also uh, did, did mention, uh, was the attorney for John Gotti. <laughs> so wow. he, run, he runs in high circles, Bear, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we cannot recommend this show enough. Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of South Florida. Yeah. Uh, Definitely, if you've ever lived in South Florida, trust me, on some of the news clips, you're going to see people that you recognize, uh, you know, as far as newscasters. Uh, but it's a very, even though it's a South Florida centric story, 
you could live in stinking uh, the Northwest, like stinking Kevin Orcutt, and you would appreciate the story because it's so compelling. All the shit that happens, there are, you know, uh, as Barry said, you got your drugs, you got your sex, you got your femme fatales, uh, your lawyers who may or may not have taken illegally gained monies. Ooh. The filthy lucre, Barry, the filthy So, yes, definitely, definitely go to Netflix and check this show out. So, Barry, I understand you have an interesting food-related story for us. Yeah, so I, I got a, those. I got a Facebook message from our old friend Ray Papa. Ray Papa, uh, who is a, a member, is a brother shipper, but was also one of the producers of the WWE Lost Treasure TV show. And uh, a good guy is actually going to be at the Fan Fest. Uh, and Jeff, should I? I guess I should update this now. So yes, we, do, we, we have an have, update. We do. We have breaking news on the Fan Fest. And uh, it's not the fact that John McAdam has decided he will not be traveling to Florida. That's not the update. Has he? Oh, has he? Has he made a decision yet? He's not going to Florida. He's not going to Florida. Go figure. But uh, unfortunately, Bill Apter notified me, and he has a family commitment that he must attend to. He does want me to pass along to everyone that he is okay and his family is okay. He said, first and foremost, I don't want anybody thinking that we're in dire straits, but something has come up and Bill, unfortunately, will not be able to make the trip to Florida. So, of and course, Barry, have you given the folks that are coming to the CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz, Florida, a good quality replacement for Bill? We have. So obviously we lost Jody Hamilton uh, and we were able to replace Jody and you can't replace Jody. That's, no. that's not even the correct verbiage, but we were able to, uh, to get Jerry Jarrett, which is a really nice, very rare fan fest get. So we, we, we wanted to do this also, you know, this is kind of our, our re-engagement fan fest. You know, we've been dormant for two years, obviously as the world's been dormant for so long. And, uh, in losing Bill after, and I love Bill, neighbor, friend, uh, but you know, I understood he, this is something that he had to do. But who can we get that would also somebody that's not overexposed, somebody that maybe has a tie to Florida, somebody, somebody that, that we've had never to had to CWF Legends fan fest? Absolutely, and somebody that uh, that somebody I would I would have loved to have had years ago. Well, we were able to secure a replacement for Bill after. It is Lynn Denton, the grappler, the dirty white boy, a man who really kind of got his start in Florida, one of the first territories he ever worked in 1978. Obviously, former North American heavyweight champion when he was with Bill Watts, the grappler, the dirty white boy, Lynn Denton, now bringing his one-man show to CWF Legends Fan Fest on November the 6th in the beautiful suburb of Tampa, Lutz, Florida, we're at the Marriott Residence in North Suncoast Beach, Highway, Suncoast Highway, North Point Village, something like that. You can get all the information on the Breaking K Fabe Facebook group, or you can go directly to CWF Legends Fan Fest. Get your tickets. There are some tickets available. I believe there are only two Ultra tickets available. So uh, we're thrilled about that. But stellar lineup we've got here. Uh, got the aforementioned grappler, Lynn Denton. Got the Rock and Roll Express. Got rock Jerry and Roll, Jarrett. brother. Rock and Roll. Rock and Roll, baby. Rock and Roll is king. Got Jerry Briscoe, Bugsy McGraw, Mad Maxine. Uh, and probably got a couple other surprises coming up. I know we've got at least one more name that we are, uh, we're working with. So 
Uh, on that note, Jeff, getting back. So Ray Papa. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let, let me let me just put out one thing before we sure. go on to your Ray Papa story. So Kevin Orcutt, of course, when he hears about Lynn Denton and the grappler, I'm sure will be thrilled and he'll be extremely upset if I don't mention the fact the grappler also, uh, Barry, former booker out in the Pacific Northwest for promoter Don Owen. So Kevin, if you want before the Fan Fest, which is what was the date again, Barry? It is November the 6th. Okay, I'm going to give Kevin an assignment. Kevin can send me one. That's one, Kevin. Send me one match that the grappler had in the Pacific Northwest that you would like us to look at here on Breaking Cave with Adrian Barry. Go to the story now, Bear. And Kevin, I'm going to turn that into a 20-minute promo for the Fan Fest, by the way. So, <laughs> so please, please make it a 20 or make it one of those three out of five fall matches that yes, the Pacific exactly. Northwest was so known for. So Ray Papa, we've given his background. So he knows in listening to the show, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm getting a little choked up, knows how much we like all of the Reese's products that are out there. So apparently Reese's has uh, there's a new product that's out there. Jeff, we have tried the snack cakes. Apparently they've got the crunchy snack cakes now with the whole peanut. So Ray got one of these today, put them in the uh, freezer for a little bit to chill, to get the right texture and consistency. And then I said, Ray, when you're done, please let me know your thoughts. You know, we'd love to hear these reviews of food. And Ray came back. I'd give it a four out of five. It's the best crunchy offering they have, but the original snack cake is creamier and smoother. It's a good change up. I just prefer the OG. So, uh, so yeah, I like it. I am actually uh, having dinner with the lovely Zoe tonight, and I am going to be stopping by. Hopefully there'll no tornadoes uh, when you have dinner at this time. It was last Wednesday night, this very, uh, in about uh, 90 minutes that we went through a tornado. No, there is nothing on the horizon tonight, but I'll be stopping at a Wawa or a 7-Eleven or anywhere that I can get these because I am now determined to try the crunchy Reese's snack cake, Jeff. Have you ever seen these yet? I don't know if I have, to be honest. I love the Nutrageous bar. Mm. Your thoughts on that? Love the nutrig, absolutely. Do you like having Reese's? You like having nuts in your mouth because you love cocks, so I figured you'd love them. Yeah, that's well, I guess you can. All right, well, there he is. He'll go home at this point. I will say uh, that on behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, when you hear this, he will be in Vegas. And Barry, let's just say the CAC may not be just about wrestling anymore. Is that fair to say, Lou? Join us. Uh, Is that the. Fair to say that more than just wrestling talk and maybe the bridge tournament, not quite as big a deal. (laughs) (laughs) The baloney blowout. Mike Mazurki is rolling in his grave (laughs) at the thought of what's going to be going on with Lou Vandal Drummond and the rest of those nefarious types. (laughs) We shall see. Let's just say that it brings to mind the, uh, we talked about movies, Barry. Now uh, an old TV show that I like very Things that'll be happening in Vegas, The Strain. Uh, I like that TV show, and maybe that'll have something to do with what's going on uh, uh, in uh, in Vegas. Uh, There'll be lots of strains of uh, things going on. There will be lots of strains, and uh, I believe Planet 13 is just, uh, it's probably within walking distance. I don't think it's too far. Where is that? Which one? Is it the Gold Coast, Lou? It is the Gold Coast. I did say Zach. I was, uh, (laughs) yeah. Zach, Zach, same difference. Zach, are you on the phone? (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe so, you're under the influence of some of those strains. What time is it, Jeff? It's uh, yeah, no, not not quite, but it's it's certainly on its way, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, there will be. But uh, there there are a couple of great places out there, and uh, and it, to me, it's funny when you said this, and you said this before we started recording. What if Mike Mazursky was alive? What would Mike <laughs> Mazursky think about? Yeah, that is. So when the forefathers of the CAC, Woody Strode, right? Woody Strode, Mike Mazur, Maria Bernardi, these old timers who have all since passed on, sat down. And as Lou pointed out, this originally took place in Studio City out in California at the Sportsman's Lodge. Uh, when they sat down and they one day we're going to be in Vegas where, where weed is legal. And it's, yeah, I don't think that was the intent. But uh, but, Lou, I, I think you're going to have a great time. I know Jeff and I are both envious that we can't be out there with you. Uh, to be able to enjoy this. So, Lou, based off of the next few days coming up for you, what are you most excited about in going to the CAC? Oh, boy. Well, it'll be interesting to, I don't know how they're going to set up the the banquet, which is the, the sort of main event of the whole few days, but uh, it'll be interesting. Our old pal John Rezzi is going to be emceeing the affair and then there were various honorees, including uh, Medusa Michelli and Ray Mysterio. I think Brian Pillman Jr. and lots of people I've I've forgotten now. And I think just walking around in the what do they call it the nostalgia room. I mean, I know the turnout is not going to be as robust as it has been in past years, but uh, I'm looking forward to putting a lot of faces to names. Will you be checking in in the Facebook group and, and updating us as to your adventures out there, Lou? Oh, you bet. Well, we will anticipate on the next edition of Breaking Heavy with Veteran and Barry. Yes. Being joined by Lou to tell stories, drop names, mentioning people that, uh, you know, maybe we'll have uh, the strain uh, part two the CAC years as told by Lou Kippelman and uh, Lou will be giving reviews of different strains uh, <laughs> after perhaps visiting some of the stores in the area. So we wish you well, Lou, enjoy yourself, please. A big hello to all the folks out there from us here at breaking cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, which is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Take it home. Lou. <laughs> <laughs>